Hello, and welcome to the Block Solid Podcast, where we talk about the evolution of the property market, the newest technologies that enhance and revolutionize the world of real estate as we know it, and how we, the owners, the buyers, the renters, the investors, and the entrepreneurs can benefit from it all. I'm Yael Tamar, CMO and co-founder of Solid Block, pioneer in real estate organization, and today I'd like to welcome a very special guest and a good friend of mine, Salim Hassan. Hi, Salim. Hi, Yael. How are you? Amazing. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thank you for having me on your show. Absolutely. I mean, we met, what was it, a week ago? And I feel like I've been out of Dubai for way too long. (laughs) Welcome back anytime. Thank you. I mean, I remember when we met, you told me how you fell in love with this country of, you know, initially based in the desert and now with these amazing skyscrapers and businesses from all over the world and hopefully soon also you know the real silicon oasis absolutely yes it's been the journey to this point so salim i'd like to talk about your background a little bit for our listeners so they also get excited about you as much as i am so salim is a financial entrepreneur with an interesting wide global background He was born in Fiji to Pakistani parents, raised in Nigeria, Oxbridge educated. He worked with the Japanese in Nikko and is now a resident of Dubai, UAE. He is passionate about technology, art, and interfaith dialogue. His professional background includes working in venture capital and the Japanese capital market. He is skilled in investor relations, securities, asset management, investor advisory, and working with technology entrepreneurs. And that's how we met. He is the CEO of Privity, which he founded back in 2004, an independent Dubai-based early-stage venture-focused firm that seeks entrepreneurs with interesting and unique ideas and helps them develop and grow. I met Salim on my second trip to Dubai, and we've had interesting conversations about how he discovers startups and his views on the recent peace or normalization agreement. With Israel, between Israel and the UAE, which was long overdue. And today I'd like to explore all of these topics and more with Salim. Is that okay? With pleasure. Awesome. So I think people will be very curious to hear first about your interesting global background and what led you to eventually settle in the UAE. Yes, absolutely. Well, you certainly captured all the geographies in that order. It started off with Suva. My late parents were from Pakistan. I grew up in African Nigeria, then went to the UK for higher education, then joined the Japanese in the UK. Had a long run with the Japan and the Japanese capital markets, stock market. And yeah, then ultimately moved to Dubai 16 years ago after my first visit in 2002. Yes. So six flags. Yes. Kind of capture zero till date. Absolutely. So how does that global background help you navigate the startup ecosystem? Well, I think one of the most important strengths that really I realized coming to Dubai more than any other place was when I first discovered the inverted demographics that exist in this country. When I came here, there was a population of about 4 million, I would say, back in 04. More than doubled. Since then. That's right. Yes. But the important thing was you had about 90% or so foreigners and about 10% Emiratis, give or take, but that was the ratio. And it's a similar sort of ratio right now. You know, even though we're now either side of 10 million, but that inversion still exists. 
So when I say inverted demographic, what I mean by that is you've got tons of more nationalities here as you know, foreigners who've come here to work. And there are about 200 nationalities, I believe, in Dubai today. So it is a melting pot. You know, it's a very cosmopolitan place, very forward thinking. And you can literally speak in just about any language over here. And you know how to connect to all of them. Well, well, here's the point. My background, you know, from a very young age, going, starting off in Australasia, in Suva, Fiji Islands, Pakistan, Africa, UK, Japan, and then finally coming here. You know, I mean, that's the path I've actually followed in life. So part of it is just growing up with it. But only when I moved to Dubai, did I realized that this was perhaps my biggest strength. So today, when people say, you know, you're doing a cross-border deal between a country A and country B, regardless of the geographies of those two countries, to me, it comes second nature because that background has covered literally a lot of the world map. You know, trying to understand an Asian or an African or European or whatever, you know, is not too difficult for me. Thankfully, I was blessed with this path in life. And today it's coming to help me in terms of interacting with startups from, you know, Mexico or Pakistan or Japan or wherever those startups happen to be. Startups come from. It's interesting because you did mention to me that it does not matter to you where entrepreneurs come from. Whereas a lot of other VCs, they're focused on specific geographies. And sometimes the geographies that are actually right in their zip code. You know, I heard a lot of Silicon Valley VCs only invest in companies that are in the Silicon Valley. You know, I feel like they're going to be missing out. But you'd said, you know, it doesn't matter where they are. Also, you're not so attached to the verticals in which your company invests. So how do you really establish whether a company is a good fit for your fund or not? Well, first and foremost, I don't have a fund, but as I told you, I'm a fundless sponsor here. I look for entrepreneurs and I look for the underlying compelling value proposition of the entrepreneurial idea. That's the starting off point. Obviously, you know, there's chemistry with the entrepreneur. There's a connection there. And then, of course, when it comes to technology today, technology transcends boundaries, right? What do tech companies in Silicon Valley do? They think global, ultimately, even if they start off in Silicon Valley, ultimately, they want to conquer the world, right? Yes. But so why would I adopt a parochial outlook in life if that's what technology ultimately is supposed to do? I'd rather find the idea and think global from day one with the entrepreneur. You know, if the idea can be scaled and you can reach, you know, different geographies. And thanks to my background, I do have that ability to connect those entrepreneurs. I'm doing one right now where we've opened up, you know, inroads into India, into sub-Saharan Africa and so on and so forth. And for me, this is just, you know, second nature because of the path I followed in life or the path that's taken me to this point hitherto. I got it. Well, especially if uh, the company is oriented on a different market, it specifically does not make sense for them to be located, you know, where the money is. They should be located probably where the market is rather, right? Well, again, it's a case by case situation. But, you know, today, if you think of companies that want to scale and when you scale, you're thinking of the world map where the largest populations are and where are the largest populations then, you know, USA has a... Mm -hmm. Correct. Correct. I mean, I mean, USA is what, 300 million plus, right? Yeah. What I recall. And when you look at China and India today, you don't even, you're a drop in the ocean in comparison. So if you want to scale something, go into India, go into China, you know, but how to access those geographies becomes the challenge, I think, for a lot of people. But if you have those connects or if you have the ability to speak in the language, 
right, or understand the culture of people, then I think the way to connect, the road becomes easier to travel. Absolutely. So how do you differentiate between a good startup that has great potential or maybe even how do you establish if they have a fit with your philosophy and you speak the same language? I think it's easier than you make it sound. Look, how do you make friends with people? You connect. There's something that, you know, you strike an accord or a balance between seeing eye to eye or having a similar vision. Or if you fall in love with the entrepreneur's vision and mission, I think that's a starting off point. You know, it, it's almost like dating. If you, don't, if you don't have that chemistry, then I don't think you're going to get that second date out of that first date, right? Yeah. But if you suddenly align your thinking with the entrepreneur's mission and vision and see the size of what he's trying to achieve, then, you know, that's a great starting off point. It's your good fortune to meet such people, you know, wherever they happen to be. It's your good fortune. And that's how I look at it. You know what? You're right. Everything starts with friendship. Every single business relationship starts with a friendship. And, you know, investment at the end of the day is a business relationship that you go and, you know, one part has either the skills or the vision or technology and the other part has access to capital. And it's a right, business transaction right. that starts with a friendship and trust. Well, yes. And to be honest, you know, the more I think about it and the more the way the value of capital as we understand it in the non-digital world, how that's being eroded, how the confidence is being eroded, how if you look at, you know, the, the size of the amount of, you know, US dollar yielding securities that are currently negative. Yep. I mean, it will tell you that the market, which is the totem factotum judge of all our opinions, is putting a negative or a zero value on that. So what I was saying to you, that we don't value money the way we do. Yes, it's an enabler. Yes, you need it to get off. But suddenly you find, you know, they want to park the money where they get better returns. And returns to me come from people who are going to come up with great ideas that can lead to growth, that can create jobs, do impact, and lots of different factors that come into it. So I look for the idea. To me, that's the starting off point, not the capital. I love how you brought in the negative interest. I understood that in the last year, 30% of all money that was printed, US dollars that were printed in the last century, I think, were printed in the last year. So I'm going to verify that quote, but that's something that I saw on social media today. And I think it's incredible to me. And that's the reason why I personally got involved in finance and alternative ways of investing that will allow people to keep their capital, you know, to maintain their capital and hopefully also to create more capital. Well, look, at the end of the day, what is money? This is trust. I mean, trust is being reflected in it, right? And the minute you lose trust in a particular currency or trust in the people who are printing that currency or trust in the government that's behind the currency that's being printed, well, then, you know, people suddenly erode, the value gets eroded, right? It all comes down to the trust, the confidence level you have in that particular asset class. And money is an asset class, right? So surprise, surprise. I mean, Bitcoin prices prices are suddenly soaring through the roof. You know, it doesn't surprise me. I'm sure the, the couple of questions I noticed in the script you sent earlier, you know, I'll touch upon that when we get to that point. So once again, I believe in the power of networks or platforms. I believe in the power of great ideas. To be those, that's where the value resides. And that's what I want to focus on. That's amazing. So I just verified that quote and I found on Cointelegraph that the United States printed more money in June than the first two centuries 
after its founding. It says, with that first trillion US dollars, we defeated British imperialists, bought Alaska and the Louisiana Purchase, defeated fascism and ended the Great Depression, built the interstate highway system and went to the moon. Right. And what did we do with the next trillion? You know, that's something we have to think about. But I want to go into some more interesting topics related to you, Slim. When we met, you showed me a math formula, which I've been thinking about since then. And I know that you have a background in mathematics. You studied under some impressive scientists. And I would love to hear more about your philosophy in business as it's related to math. And can you please share it with our listeners? Sure. Look, to me, if you think about what does an entrepreneur do at his or her core. They always, you know, if you look at any pitch deck, the first thing they talk about, the problem statement, right? And then they come up with their solution, right? Just think of those two words, problem, solution, right? Just focus on those two words for a second, okay? Mm -hmm. Now let's step out of the entrepreneurial world and let's go into the mathematical world. What do mathematicians do for a living? They solve problems. problems. Again, the word problem, again, the word solution. So for me, as a mathematician, I draw parallels between the way we think and approach solving problems to the way an entrepreneur thinks and creates solutions to problems they've identified. Because there is a parallel I see in our mindsets. In fact, I go as far as saying there's a homeomorphic map in the mindset of a mathematician and an entrepreneur. And that's the mathematical analogy I was drawing when we met, okay? That said, I came up with my own corporate methodology when I was studying privity 16 years ago, and I call that 4I. And 4I is basically ideas, innovation, invention, intelligence, and that's the reverse side of my card, okay? Yeah. Th those are all I's, mm -hmm. and when you join them together, it creates like a little window, right? Yeah. So those four I's that I identify lead to the window of business opportunity, I liked it so much, it became the logo of the company. It's the way I think, okay? So it's all to do with ideas, innovation, invention, intelligence. To me, these are the four critical ingredients I look for in a startup. You've got to have a great idea. You've got to have some innovation or invention. And you have to be aware of the intelligence surrounding your environment or your environment, you know? To me, these are absolutely critical things. Thank you, Slim. So I gathered you studied under Stephen Hawking and Roger Penrose. How has this impacted your life and career choices? <sighs> Wow. I've been blessed. You know, in 79, I took geometry classes. By then, Roger Penrose, he later got knighted, became Sir Roger Penrose. And I think about six, eight weeks ago, he shared the Nobel Prize in physics with two other people. Yeah, he taught us about group theory around the Rubik's Cube. And he did a lot of stuff in geometry with us. Brilliant mind. And he was also in the same college as I at Oxford, Wadham College at Oxford. Yeah, which also happened to my late father's college, and we have a history with that college and the university. But yes, yeah, specifically, Roger Penrose was a brilliant mind. And then when I initially wanted to do my doctorate, so my tutor advised me to go and do the part three of the Matt Stripe course at Cambridge. And then, of course, if I complete that successfully, if I still want to do a doctorate, well, then I could come back to Oxford and consider that. So I went over, I got a grant to do the part three of the Matt Stripe course. Now, the mathematical tripos at Cambridge is very interesting. I mean, tripos, as the word would suggest, three parts, right? But there are two courses at Cambridge which actually have four parts. One is mathematics and one is physics. At mathematics, the part three of the maths tripos is actually a stepping stone before you go and do a PhD. And it's probably one of the most challenging and most difficult courses I've ever done in my life till today, bar nothing. 
what I do today is not conceptually hard, but studying for the part three was. And at Cambridge, yes, I did have the good fortune of being lectured at DAMPT, which is the Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics by the late Stephen Hawkins. You know, that was an amazing experience. It's a um, dream. You know, just to have access to those minds at a very young age. Yes, I mean, I'm nowhere near them in terms of intellect, but in terms of shaping the way you think, yes, they absolutely served as great guides and influences on my journey in life. Absolutely, yes. So your company, Privity, is a member of the Global Blockchain Council. How does blockchain fit into the picture? So when the Global Blockchain Council was announced by, there was a press release that came out on the 16th of February, 2016, from the Prime Minister's office here in Dubai. I was very kindly invited to be part of the 32 founding members. It's in the press release. It's online if anybody wants to see it. Well, the Global Blockchain Council of Dubai, the idea was to get everything on Dubai put onto the blockchain by a certain timeline. And that is a journey. That was the vision of the leaders here. And I played a very tiny part in that by being part of it. And of course, getting involved with my first blockchain startup investment in that same year, a company called Ribbit, which .me, which later rebranded, became Loyal with two Ys. The Global Blockchain Council has morphed since then. I'm not as engaged or as active as I was initially because obviously I've got other responsibilities with the existing portfolio companies and the pipeline that I'm very focused on right now. But yes, it was a great opportunity. And of course, through the Global Blockchain Council, I met a gentleman who is today one of the startups that I backed in Q1 this year in mobility as a service. It can be the startup came out of Netherlands, Holland. And I had the good fortune of meeting the founder and CEO through the Global Blockchain Council of Dubai. So you never know where these journeys lead you to and who you might meet and where the next door opens from. So going in with an open mind was great and wonderful and brilliant people along the journey. That's amazing, Sleem. I mean, I know you invested in a blockchain startup that did really well. Can you tell me a little bit about that and how, in general, how you see blockchain and how you see the trends associated with blockchain in the next, let's say, five to 10 years? Well, look, I did exit the blockchain company, though where it's at at the moment, I can't comment on it. I mean, anybody who wants to follow up on them can, you know, reach the company directly or read up what's in the public domain. But it was a small exit. It was a humble exit. And it was my first dipping my toes into a space that was totally unknown to me. But the one thing I can say was... When I did have the good fortune of being introduced to the founder through actually a dear friend of mine who actually, you know, were neighbors in the same building. And again, you know, serendipity, you get a call from somebody and the next thing you know, you're talking to somebody who is building a blockchain startup. And at that time, this is probably 2014 or thereabouts, 15. And I had no clue what this was. And he was very kind enough to actually hold my hand and, you know, walk me through this and make me understand. And the day you know, the penny dropped and, you know, the light bulb came on my aha moment when I grasped it. You know, I turned around to him and I said, blockchain is probably going to be one of the most significant impacts in our lifetime since the advent of electricity. This is my response to him, what I said. And why I said that was afterwards, I went and started digging deeper into blockchain, especially the mathematics around the hash functions and cryptography. And when I saw what the mathematics underlying blockchain represented. And that's when I was totally sold. I mean, it is rock solid. 
So whether you have people out there in the media hyping it or you know, bad-mouthing it or promoting it or citing it, doesn't matter. The underlying fundamentals are rock solid. It's like when you solve a problem and you have an equation or the laws of nature are based on mathematical equations. When the mathematics is solid, there's no debate. Understood. Would you invest in another blockchain company today? I have already. I've done two this year. Both are linked. Can you tell us more about them? Sure. The first one was a company called Urbango. It's in mobility as a service. They are creating the operating system layer for mobility, basically creating an interoperable platform to connect all modes of transports and mobility in a seamless manner. It's really interesting. Uh, yeah. And the second one, more recently, and this was my first MENA GCC uh, mm. UAE startup, which I got involved with, was a company called Verifax, and that's in uh, traceability as a service. I see it a lot in the news recently. Yeah, they were actually uh, written up on the 20th of December in the national paper in Abu Dhabi. They're based in Abu Dhabi with ADGM, the Abu Dhabi Global Markets. They're registered over there. And they have co-sell agreements with Microsoft and Oracle using the Hyperledger fabric. And they've also cut a deal with the folks out in Asia with Anchain to expand into the ASEAN countries. And they're one of the technological partners on Anchain.net's website. You can look it up. It's Anchain.net under technological parties. You can find Verifax Asia, which is the Asian joint venture they set up over there. Yeah, so I've made two further bets in that space. And I'm always looking for interesting opportunities there, if they make sense. And I can understand it. And I can help and add value and show why not. Absolutely. So what are some of the biggest hurdles you believe we face while trying to streamline blockchain globally? Well, again, this is all changing and evolving literally day by day. I mean, two, three, four years ago, I used to talk about the scalability and also the shortage of blockchain developers. I mean, again, this is old data, so I'm sure the numbers have changed. But I remember, I don't know if this was in 16, 17 or 18, forgive me, I can't recall exactly. But I remember somebody asking me this question and there were about 6 million Java developers in the world. And at that time, about 10 to 15,000 blockchain developers in the world. So this was the first bottleneck I identified. So tons of people talked about blockchain this, blockchain that. But it's like, you know, who under the hood is going to do the wiring and actually build those blockchain platforms? Since then, more and more interest has come. People are developing schools, training, learning. So I believe, you know, there will be a time when you'll have a plethora of blockchain developers in the world, just like you have Java developers. And that will help in terms of rolling out and dealing with the supply-demand bottleneck in terms of projects and developers available. Very cool. So I want to turn the conversation around a little bit because I've heard a few other podcasts of yours and I cannot not address this. So your three big passions are technology and interfaith dialogue. Is there any kind of entrepreneurial venture you can imagine that might bring these three things together? As a matter of fact, yes, because about probably about a year ago, I actually wrote, and I'm going to quote exactly what I wrote down with actually one of the founders of one of my portfolio companies. I've exited, I exited last year, a company called Ballora. The founder actually wrote him about an idea I had, and this is about a, a year old perhaps, but I've got it written down and I'm going to just quote it. And I, what I said to him, and I quote, my 16-year journey in Dubai comprises of two distinct phases. The former first five years was getting involved with art and interfaith dialogue. And the latter, the next 10, 11 years, was building a global early-stage technology portfolio from Dubai. 
So I look at these parts of my life as my left hand and my right hand. And today, I think the time has come to put both of my hands together and celebrate the birth of FITA. What is that? It's the world's first interfaith technology accelerator. And let me explain this. What do I mean by FITA? It's still an idea in my head, but I think if there are more people who are interested in this, I'm happy to see how we can develop this further. So to me, religions are siloed. That's, you know, this is how I look at religions today. And what I see as interfaith dialogue, to me, it acts as an API connectivity between the different faiths, all right, both Abrahamic and non-Abrahamic. Therefore, by establishing a platform that is backed by all world-leading faiths, which in turn churn out the challenges and pain points within their communities, we can get the smartest technology minds in the world to attempt to create solutions. The interesting part is that these solutions can be replicated and scaled across the different faith groups experiencing similar issues. Zakat funds, church, and synagogue collections could be apportioned to funding this initiative, not to mention the huge and fast-growing impact investor base globally who would back such an initiative. The more we understand and help our fellow beings by addressing the challenges they live with daily, the better the interfaith dialogue will result in. One of the most amazing byproducts in my thinking on this journey, this 16-year journey in Dubai, is today how I define technology. It is the ultimate manifestation of interfaith dialogue as it transcends color, creed, religion, and race. I wrote this over a year ago. Okay. So let's hope that uh, there will be people who come on board because I think that we can become stronger by collaborating. Look, there are problems everywhere in the world. Every community, every different subgroup in the world have challenges, issues. This is where social impact kicks in. Now, if you yeah. get all the different faiths in the world to form a body, right, yeah. the platform, just like you have an accelerator, you have Y Combinator, why focus it to that? Why did you get the different groups and then use technology, the smartest minds to solve these problems? Like you have uh, demo days here and, you know, you have competitions there, mm-hmm. you know, address these problems, right? And then, first of all, problems around water, problems around all kinds of challenges, food security, I mean, all these sort of things. Because food doesn't affect a Christian or a Muslim or a Jewish or a Buddhist, it affects humanity. Again, humanity being the common denominator of all these things. But it's the different religious groups that are siloed. And this is one way of bringing everybody together and then using tech to address those challenges. This was my thinking and my vision. Yeah, I love it. And I remember you talking to me about an artist who you backed many years ago and is now one of the most successful parts of your portfolio, so to speak. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Because, you know, personally, I've become a big fan since I I learned about him from you. And what is he doing today? Well, it's funny you bring him up because, you know, since the last time I met you, Yael, and an hour ago, I got an approach by somebody who wanted to buy that particular painting. And I politely turned him down because I thought the price was a little bit way off or, you know, not doing justice to what I think. But to answer your question, um, the artist is called Ralph Hyman's. Mm-hmm. You know, I did a separate podcast with somebody else not too long ago, where I actually for the first time aired my entire 20-year journey with Ralph to the world. And what triggered it was actually the Abraham Accord being signed. Because oh. what actually prompted me to do that was not when he, you know, eight years ago when he hit the jackpot, being the only artist picked to paint the queen for the diamond, her uh, diamond jubilee. 
that was a huge endorsement by Buckingham Palace. That painting hangs at the Westminster Abbey. For those who are in London or those who visit London would love to learn more about Ralph. But it was when the Abraham Accord, you know, got signed. I thought it's perhaps the first time the story should be told to the world because what happened 15 years ago, and when you see the image of the dialogue, it speaks for itself. In fact, Ralph actually documented what the circumstances surrounding the dialogue and how it all unfolded in Dubai 15 years ago when he set foot here for the first time. When I, you know, my tech business hadn't really taken off, but I did, you know, I did a couple of entrepreneurial things, and one of the well, was partnering up with Ralph. And yeah, he remembers that day very, very well when he brought the painting. And you know, because of a particular image in the painting, well, we were told we don't want it anymore. Or the commissioner did a total, what I call a volta fast, meaning an about turn. And I lived that moment in Dubai, and I stepped up and I told Ralph, I'll acquire it, because I saw it differently. And I'll always see these things differently because that's the way I've been brought up. And fast forward 15 years later, I don't have a crystal ball. There's no way I can tell you what, what I'm even going to do tomorrow. Forget about 15 years from now. It's all there. The world can see it, hear it, listen to it. Yeah, that is super, super interesting, Salim. I love art. And I looked at his paintings online. I saw the Queen painting, actually. You know, I'm amazed of the just in the level of art recognition that some artists enjoy today and other artists remain relatively unknown. And it's left to luck or this specific artist meeting somebody like you to bring him you know, to the point where he is today. And I was always wondering how blockchain technology can help, let's say, bring these artists to the world in a better and a more streamlined or more effective fashion. Right. Well, so look, I'm sure there's a role for blockchain to play, be it in the form of fractional ownership. And there are a few startups that I've come across. Mm-hmm. Uh, McKenna's is one of them, for those who are interested to learn. I mean, I did have the good fortune of meeting the founders, and I thought that was a very interesting approach. And yeah, I'm sure there are other initiatives going on in the world. I mean, I don't know all of them, but yes, certainly, you know, any kind of asset class can be tokenized and then you can create, I mean, you're doing something similar in real estate, aren't you? Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. yeah. So, I mean, you know, you can draw parallels between, you know, things that have been illiquid in the past or out of the reach of, say, a democratized investor base, you know? Yeah. So it's not really the, you know, you can have a, a bit of a Picasso in your portfolio if you so choose tomorrow. I mean, that's where the world is going, I guess. Yeah. You know, with, or Ralph with, Hyman's. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. (laughs) Absolutely. So it seems that the United Arab Emirates is fertile grounds for technological innovation and blockchain development and adaptation. What are your speculations for the reason for this? How has the UAE become this tech hub as of late? Only one answer to that. I salute the vision of the leadership, full stop. There's nothing more to say. You know, when you got the top wanting something, it happens. So what is the reason the leadership is so interested in the technological development in the region? Well, look, there are two things. One is what I call the shift from Dubai 1.0 to Dubai 2.0, right? I think I maybe touched upon it when we met in my office, but, but in any way, I'll just recap it. When I came here, the UAE focused and invested on labor camps. Those were the building blocks they used to build the infrastructure ecosystem of this place, the roads, the buildings the airports, the hospitals, and so on and so forth. Now, a lot of that infrastructure has been built. And they also realized that 
oil will not last forever. So there has been a move to diversify away from hydrocarbons. You know, they set up Mazdar, a center in Abu Dhabi, to focus on renewable power, renewable energy, and so on and so forth. And also they decided to focus on the entrepreneurial ecosystem and technology and stuff. And then there's also, I think, a second and more important thing. There's a strong youthful population across the MENA. And I think job creation is very, very important. And I'm sure this is on first and foremost on the minds of the leadership. In fact, we even have a Minister of Youth appointed in the United Arab Emirates to focus on this because they do realize that youth are the leaders of tomorrow. And if not the leaders of today, they don't have to wait till tomorrow at the rate technology is moving. You may find tomorrow having a 21-year-old minister in the cabinet. It's possible, very, very possible, if it's not already happened. So these kind of things are perhaps some of the drivers behind reasons why technology is being chosen. And what I said, and I quoted 16 years ago, and I use that in some of my presentations today, to me, it's the only discipline I've identified that has the ability to alter our ways of life, whether we choose to embrace it or not. Even religion can't do that. And by that, I mean very simply, it's the one thing in life I've identified that doesn't give you the luxury of choice, Yael. Everything in life, you have a choice. Sadly, technology doesn't give you that. You either embrace it or you're dead. So, you know, this is how I look at it. That's actually a great segue into the COVID conversation, which dominates the majority of everything today. And the funny thing or the ironic thing is that I just read an article about the biggest winners of COVID, right? So there's millions of people who died, you know, it's so tragic. And here we have a Silicon Valley article about which technologies or companies have gained enormous amount of capital or, you know, recognition and publicity for that. So it's kind of like a double-edged sword over there. So basically, you know, it's had, we know the impact that it's had on the fintech ecosystem with all the companies thrown into digital innovation, companies and governments as well, for the good or the bad. And you just mentioned that when you don't embrace technology, you stay behind or you die. So how do you see things emerging over the coming year as we're coming out of COVID, hopefully? Look, I mean, there have been all kind of alphabets thrown at the kind of recovery. You know, some have said L, some have said U, some have said even K. I'm more in the K camp for the simple reason, and I've used this, you know, Dickensian analogy in the past when I spoke at the Global Blockchain Congress in-person first event in Dubai that emerged out in, back in September, was they asked a similar question, and I think it's quite apt. If anybody's read, you know, Charles Dickens's book called A Tale of Two Cities, I think the first few sentences there says it all. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of incredulity. He was comparing the UK and France at the time. And to be honest, you know, this resonates. As a child, I remember memorizing all these verses. But when I look at the world today, you know, especially with the impact of technology, what it's doing, some places it's the best of times. Some people have had bumper years and some places have the worst of times. So that's why that book comes to mind. But the one thing I will add, because you have the best and the worst happening simultaneously, it means there are winners and losers, but in this case, extreme winners and losers, right? Everything's yeah. gone extreme. And because it's gone extreme, one has to pay attention. Why? Because of the impact it has on people who are in the camp, less fortunate camp, right? You know, yeah. 
because the winning cannot just go on forever. Yes, it's great. Yes, it's good. I think anybody who's got great ideas should be rewarded for that. I'm not here to take excellence out of the equation. Far from it. But on the other hand, there are going to be social repercussions as a result of the impact of COVID, to your point. Then one has to zoom in and address this because you can't leave these people behind. You cannot. Because at the end of the day, it will create a problem of its own. And that's what you need to avoid. Absolutely. And I wish we could channel these great minds into solving the biggest problems, right? Because at the time where, you know, you said you don't want to take excellence out of the equation. Now, how do we measure success? That's how we we really need to think about it in these terms. So the article that I read is measuring success in the number of capital these startups raised or the amount of revenue. And that's how investors get involved. They're asking, what is your potential market? And when you're looking at a hunger problem in the time of the pandemic where Funding sources have dried up where the United States has withdrawn from major international organizations. And there is so much poverty and so much hunger, which is kind of this unknown, almost unheard of effect of the pandemic where, you know, every day we talk about these major countries and the deaths that are happening as a result of the pandemic. But there are additional deaths that are happening as a result of hunger and just additional type of illnesses that are not being attended to in third world countries. Now, I wish we could direct these amazing brains and resources to solving these problems. So that's what my wish would be. Well, that's precisely why I brought up FITA, the first interfaith technology accelerator. That's where you take these brilliant minds and marry and tie them up with every single major denomination and even minor denominations in the world, because every person belongs to one or the other denomination. Even the null set, even the atheists can join that platform because the null set is a set in mathematics, right? If you yeah. don't believe in God, yes, that, that's a belief in itself. So yeah. to me, you should take everybody, get everybody's view on that platform. Nobody should be left out and then apply the smartest minds in the world to tackle those problems. Right. Wow. So as the person who enjoys conducting interfaith dialogues, do you believe there is room for God in exact science? Have you looked at the Euler's equation? Yes. Well, I mean, a lot of people online who talk about it as perhaps that being God's equation. But I mean, uh-huh. jokes apart, I mean, when you get the exponential factor, the complex number, pi, zero and one all in one equation, you tell me. But jokes aside, the answer is yes. Simply yes. And I'll tell you why I say yes. I mean, there's no scientific proof that God exists. There's no scientific proof that God does not exist. All right? Nobody show me a proof. If you don't show me a proof, then as far as I'm concerned, I'm going to keep believing in God. Because that's my faith. Okay? So, you know, nobody should... Agnostic, more or less. Well, no. I mean, I have my faith. I mean, those who choose not to have faith, that's fine. I'm not saying it. But I'm saying as a mathematician... Somebody who believes in God, they both rest inside me. Because I've not seen a a mathematical proof that God does not exist. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, Stephen Hawking, I read his writing and Einstein's writing on this, you know, as I've been exploring also my relationship with science and God. It's a really interesting conversation. Maybe we'll do another podcast just on that. Sure. Awesome. So tell me about an investment that didn't go as well or as expected and some of the lessons you and maybe we can learn from that. Very simple. One of my first bets I made, sadly, in China, again, no reflection on China. I think China is a great nation. 
but just my own personal interaction was my first bet in China that ended up in fraud. You know, now to me, if there's one eye that's missing, or if I was to expand four eye into five eye, that eye would be integrity. If the one thing to me that is perhaps most important in just about every single thing I do, I try to measure and size up the integrity of the entrepreneur. And in spite of the introductions, warm introductions, somebody I've known for long, this is what happened. So again, it takes me back to something else I learned. You know, now to quote Shakespeare. There's no art to find the mind's construction from the face. You know, you can put a lie detector on and try to do all kind of funny things and stuff. No, if somebody has bad intention, again, I've been blessed to have a wonderful father who taught me the wonderful things growing up. He's late now, but a lot of things he said come back to me. He was a lawyer. He said this to me. He said, "Salim, if you've got two parties doing business and they get the best lawyers to put a contract together." Mm-hmm. And one of the parties has malafide. It's not worth the paper it's written on. Okay, malafide meaning bad intentions. Bad intentions, right? Correct. Okay. So again, you know, if you're doing business with somebody, right, and the other party, you can only speak for yourself. If the other party has malafide, what are you going to do? You can get the best law firm in the world. Yeah. So it's you know going through good money after bad, right? Yeah. So so what do you learn out about out of that? You cut. You, you can never be. Look, people say, you know, how do I mitigate the risk? I tell the people straight up: if you are not prepared to stomach the loss in venture, my simple, easy advice is: don't do it. It's not for you. You weren't made for this. If you go into an investment as an angel investor, early investor, and even if you understand the idea, you know, it's pre-revenue. You love the entrepreneur. Everything stacks up, and you're not prepared to lose what you're betting. Please don't do it. Please don't do it because the answer is: Can you lose the entire amount? Yes. Take that box. Tell people that up front. You can lose it. I'd rather you tell me that up front, and now I know whether I should make that bet or not. So, to, to any investor, I tell them: Look, whatever your net asset value is, or whatever your worth is, whether it's a million dollars, ten million, hundred, it doesn't matter. At least five to ten percent top is what you allocate towards this asset class. Okay. Now, why do I say five to ten percent? Just ballpark, because it can go to zero. So, what are you left with? You're left with ninety to ninety-five percent. Can your life carry on with ninety ninety-five percent? Mine can. I'm sure yours can too, right? But yep. if you bet the whole hundred percent or ninety percent of your NAV and it goes to zero, hmm, that's good. That's going to pinch. All right. So yeah. the idea is knowing how to asset allocate, and then within that five to ten percent, whether you do one, two, five, hundred, your call, right? And that's how I look at venture. And then within that five to ten percent, you get one that does a ten x, hundred x. You won't thank me enough. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's Touching the way the to bets. approach venture. So I've taken this thing out of the equation. I don't look at the word risk. Show me the idea. I like it. I got five to ten percent. I know what I'm going to bet, and that's it. Got it. So you basically estimate the risk of more of a systemic risk or a statistical risk, right? You're not looking specifically at a does this startup have bigger risk or smaller risk of somebody having, say, bad intention. You're just saying out of you know ten apples, one of them is going to be a bad apple, or maybe half of it is going to be a bad apple, five percent, and you know, casting it aside, I can lose this amount of money, right? Look, whether it's a startup or it's a big established company, you know. 
Everybody heard about what happened to Wirecard. Everybody knows what happened to Exxon. I mean, I can go, the list is endless. That's on the big end. Yes, startups by nature, you know, the infant mortality rate is very, very high. We all know that. <laughs> so the point is you go through your initial sweep. And of course, there's so many startups in the world today that even if you spent the rest of your life looking at 10, 15, 20 a day, if, even if you can do that, you won't even cover, you won't even scratch the tip of the iceberg. I've done a, I've done a back of the envelope math on that. And honestly, it's impossible. So look, you've got to have a bit of luck. Serendipity plays a huge part here. And then, of course, your understanding of the space, you know, I mean, even the biggest, mightiest and the best on Sand Hill Road. I mean, look at their portfolios, perhaps one, two, three really established their names. You know, those who are early investors in Facebook or Google or, yeah. you know, you, you know the names. I remember once looking at Kleiner Perkins's first fund. I think it was Genentech that actually, you know, they whacked the ball out of the park. And many of the others were also ran. But that's my point. You won't make all the companies winners. But if you can get higher batting average in terms of winners versus losers, then yes, you establish your brand. And then, of course, more people get attracted that you are in a position to identify more companies that won than that lost. And on balance, then, you know, that, that gets reflected in your brand. Like anything, yeah. it's, it's a track record that speaks, right? So what can you advise to other people who invest in startups or just starting out, let's say, what's your best advice besides prepare for it to go south? <laughs> well, I think I answered that and I'll re reiterate. I think that's the first thing. Look, if you are not spending 24-7-365 in this space, then rely on people who are. And if you dis or invest your own time and learn it, nothing's stopping you, right? But there are some people who are in the trenches, 24, 365. You know, I've made it my mission till my last breath to do this. Now, if there are other people who can set up and say the same thing, great, talk to them. But that's what I do. Follow people like Salim, follow people who invest well, for, no, you know, for a living. This is not a pitch to anybody. I'm just sharing my mind because you asked a question. You know, by God's grace, I have my own approach to life. And part of it is spiritual, yes. And part of it is mathematical, yes. And then part of it is my sheer sweat of my brow. So, you know, those three things I put together and then, you know, have my own approach in life. Now, have I batted any out of the park as yet? No. Do I hope to one day? Fingers crossed. Yes. And then hopefully that will, you know, establish my brand further, you know. But till that point, I'll keep working hard and doing my best to advise or help or work with entrepreneurs. So to the investors, I say, obviously, don't bite off more than you can chew. And talk to people and ask questions. You know, if you don't understand something, don't be shy. Don't be afraid to ask, you know, however simple it might sound, because that's the way you learn, right? And then for the entrepreneurs, I would say, make sure there is business logic that flows in whatever you're trying to pitch at, right? Yeah. Because as an investor, what I look for, and certainly as a mathematician, even more so, I look for the business logic. And where it falls, usually that's where the business will actually fall on its face. Like an expression, right? Like a mathematical formula. Yes, absolutely. I follow the flow. And if there's something that doesn't add up, immediately a little red flag pops in my head. And that's the first question I'll ask the entrepreneur. So I like to see a flow that makes sense. And as long as you're making sense, I will follow you. Absolutely. I love it. You know, it actually, you just inspired me to go and write up some sort of an equation for where we're going. And well, in my mind, and it's well, not the total addressable market calculation. And that's actually kind of like the formula I've been using, but much more than that. 
Yael, if that's an unintended consequence of this podcast, I'm honored more than you can imagine. I'm honored for you to say that. <laughs> well, on this optimistic note, Salim, I'd like to thank you so much for coming on. And it's usual, you know, as usual, it's a pleasure to see you. Thank Even... you so much for having me and long may this friendship last. And please look forward to welcoming you back here in Dubai in the future. And I hope next year, uh, God willing and COVID permitting, I will come and visit you guys as well. Yes, we'd love to have you here. You know, I can't wait to have you here actually and show you around and show you off to all the local funds and VCs and entrepreneurs and friends. You know, we'll have a big event and a big party. Yes. Yes, you know, yes, with, yes. hopefully without the masks. Maybe that's something to look forward to in the next year. So yeah. thanks. That's Thank you. Thank sure. you very much. Thanks for joining me on the Block Solid podcast today. And you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or by visiting our website at solidblock.co slash podcast. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to rate and review and spread the word. And look for Salim Hassan. He has a few other podcasts online that are worth hearing. Thanks. Bye, Salim. Bye, Yael. Thank you so much.